Yeah, my name is Joel. I'm just going to read from Acts today. So it's uh, chapter 26. Then Agrippa said to Paul, You have my permission to speak for yourself. So Paul motioned with his hand and began his defense. King Agrippa, I consider myself fortunate to be standing here before you today, today as I make my defense against all the accusations of the Jews, and especially so because you are well acquainted with the Jewish customs. <clears throat> Sorry. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. The Jewish people all know the way I've lived ever since I was a child, from the beginning of my life in my own country and also in Jerusalem. Then they have known me for a long time and can testify, if they are willing, that I conform to the strictest sect of our religion, living as a Pharisee. And now it is because of my hope in what God has promised our ancestors that I am on trial today. This is the promise our 12 tribes are hoping to see fulfilled as they earnestly serve God day and night. King Agrippa, it is because of this hope and these that these Jews are accusing me. Why should any of you consider it credible that God raises the dead? I too was convinced that I ought to do all that was possible to oppose the name of Jesus of Nazareth and that it is just what I did in Jerusalem. On the authority of the chief priest, I put many of the Lord's people in prison. And when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. Many a time I went from one synagogue to another to have them punished, and I tried to force them to blaspheme. I was so obsessed with persecuting them that I even hunted them down in foreign cities. On one of these journeys, I was going to Damascus with the authority and the commission of the chief priest. About noon, King Agrippa, as I was on the road, I saw a light from heaven. Brighter than the sun, blazing around me and my companions, we all fell to the ground. I heard a voice saying to me in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Then I asked, Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, the Lord replied. Now get up and stand on your feet. I've appeared to you to appoint you as a servant and as a witness of what you have seen and will see of me. I will rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles. I am sending you to them to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God so that you may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. So then King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the vision from heaven. First to those in Damascus, to those in Jerusalem, and to all in Judea, and then the Gentiles. I preached that they should repent and turn to God and demonstrate their repentance with their deeds. That is why Jews seized me in the temple courts and tried to kill me. But God has helped me this very day, so I stand here testify, testify to small and great alike. I am saying nothing beyond what the prophets and Moses said would happen. That the Messiah would suffer and that the first to rise from the dead would bring the message of light to his own people and to the Gentiles. At this point, Festus interrupted Paul's defense. You're out of your mind, Paul, he shouted. Your great learning is driving you insane. 
I'm not insane, most excellent Festus, Paul replied. What I am saying is true and reasonable. The king is familiar with these things, and I can speak freely to him. I'm convinced that none of these have escaped his notice, and because it was not done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you do. Then Agrippa said to Paul, Do you think that such a short time we can persuade me to be a Christian? Paul replied, Short time or long, I pray to God that not only you, but all who are listening to me today may become what I am, except for these change. The king rose, and with him the governor and Bernice and those sitting with them. After they left the room, they began saying to one another, This man is not doing anything that deserves death or imprisonment. Agrippa said to Festus, This man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. Hey, good morning, everyone. Great to see you all. Uh, my name's Luke, the pastor here at Trinity Church, Golden Grove. Really thrilled to be here at this part of Acts today. Uh, we've heard from Arthur and Tammy. Um, we're going to hear from someone else a bit later, but we're going to spend a few moments thinking about Paul and what's going on in this chapter. Now, I reckon uh, we call it the great Australian dream because there's so much uncertainty, isn't there? If the dream will actually materialize. If whatever you think the great Aussie dream is will actually happen for you because there's no guarantee you'll get it. That's pretty um, unhappy thought for a bright Sunday morning that you may not get the dreams you have, but um, I put it to you today that Christianity does not offer us an Australian dream, our best life now sort of thing, or uh, this life is all there is. Maybe a few good years at the end of your days but concrete hope. Instead of the Australian dream, I want to put to you today the great Christian hope. And notice how he uses those words differently. Dream is more wishful, but hope in Christian thought it doesn't need all the ducks in line for success because it rests on the character of our eternal, unchanging, gracious God. This is a hope that is upside down and back to front to the Aussie dream in terms of you start off little and you work towards it. But if you look at the life of Jesus, he began by giving up the glory of heaven to be born. Then his life was this progression of a downward slope in some ways towards death on a cross before descending into death itself. But it was here that hope became a reality in a person who rose from the dead, who says to us, I will give you a resurrection like mine, to a life where all the sad things will come untrue, who will make a new heaven and earth and unite the two together, who will restore all that is lost, who says, your best life is not here and now, but guaranteed later on. And that is the great Christian hope of a real-life bodily resurrection with Jesus. Listen to three uh, clever Christian thinkers, far more clever than I, uh, talk about the resurrection and how central it is. Uh, someone says the resurrection is not part of the Christian faith, it is the very heart of the Christian faith. As South Australian Nick Hawke says Christianity is founded on the life, death and resurrection of Jesus in history. All these quotes are on the outline, by the way. Whenever the church has forgotten this, it has emptied churches, lost a passion for mission, found itself unable to offer anything in the way of hope. It has simply preached moralism. 
or Timothy Keller, who recently uh, went to be with Jesus, actually, says the resurrection was the beginning of the restoration of the natural order of the world, the world as God intended it to be. Not merely that Christians have hope for the future, but they have hope that comes from the future. Now, I want to lay that foundation as we begin, because in Acts 26, Paul is on trial for the great Christian hope he has in the resurrection. And we have to get that foundation there to understand why he's where he is. Now, just by way of context, initially last week in Acts 23, Paul was in Jerusalem before the Sanhedrin, it's the big Jewish council, but he was quickly whisked away because a death threat was made against his life. It's been two years since that has happened. Two years, he's still in prison, and he's left there as a political move. A new king has come to power, new governors are on the scene, and they hear about Paul. They hear about this strange man in prison, and they try and use him for their advantage to gain favor with the Jews, because the Jewish council does not like Paul at this stage. And after a few weeks of visiting dignitaries, coming to Paul and sussing him out and hearing a little bit about him, in Acts 26, Paul is now finally, after two years, able to let the Roman authorities know, why are you in prison? Why are you a Jew by birth, you're a Roman by birth, you're in prison, what got you here? And interesting, if you, as we heard in the Bible reading, what stands out is that Paul doesn't act guilty. Three times in Acts, and we heard it at the very end, he's found to be innocent, but it doesn't lead to his release. Why is that? Well, as we saw, Paul is confident by this stage, took a while for him to get there, but confident that God is at work using the Roman legal system to bring Paul to Rome itself, because God has said, you'll testify about me in Rome. And by this time, Paul has clued in, ah, God's doing this. I get it. Maybe you've had that too. Things happen in your life where you read parts of the Bible and about a week later you go, I wonder if God's telling me something through what's all that's happening. And we're slow to get there. But I tell you what, when you realize you're in in the middle of God's will, it certainly is the best place to be, even if it's not the most comfortable, pretty or prosperous. So Paul's confidence comes from God's promise in Acts 23.11, to be with him, to give a faithful testimony about Jesus. So, big idea for today is that this chapter is a helpful model of what it means to speak about our hope in the resurrection. It's a helpful model of what it means to speak about our hope in the resurrection. What does giving a faithful testimony look like? It's talking about the great Christian hope. And I hope you'll just be so encouraged in the next 15 minutes as we walk through this that you'd find great joy in speaking about the resurrection of Jesus, and you'd feel just a little bit more confident and comfortable to live with this great Christian hope. So what I want to do, I want to run through five observations from what Paul says, and then finish with two considerations for us today. First one is Paul understands his audience. Paul understood his audience, verse 1 to 3 of Acts 26. Now, Agrippa was a big-named ruler. His family, the Herodian dynasty, has appeared lots in the Bible. Consider his great-grandfather, Herod the Great, tried to kill baby Jesus, remember? Then his grandfather, Antipas, beheaded John the Baptist. And then Herod Agrippa's dad, confusingly also called Agrippa, he killed James, one of the twelve disciples. And now Agrippa, number two, is, is here with his sister Bernice, trying to work out what Paul is in prison for. 
And knowing that does not fill you with confidence, does it? Your whole history has got a, uh, whole family has got a history of killing Christians. Except, this Agrippa is different. He tried to keep the peace with a number of Jewish and Roman uh, wars around this time, which led him to be sympathetic to understand the Jewish prophets. He had lots of dinners with the priests and the Sanhedrin to work out what they believed. Now Paul knew this. And because Paul knew he was talking to, it shaped what he said. We have two long verses at the beginning when Paul says, I'm so thrilled to be able to talk to you. I'm so glad that I get to talk to you, King Agrippa, about what, why I'm here. Two years in prison, Paul is respectful and he's kind and he thanks Agrippa for this opportunity. There is no frustration or anger in his voice for being here for that long. And because Paul knows his audience, he knows he's so acquainted with Jewish customs and the Jewish folks, he's going to be now as helpful as possible in explaining why he believes what he does. Paul knew his audience and used that to his advantage to helpfully talk about his hope, the great Christian hope in Jesus. Secondly, in verse 4 to 8, Paul knows then what the conversation needs. Paul says, I was once a well-respected Pharisee among the Jews. That came with it a certain set of beliefs and hopes. Firstly, there were hopes in God's promises. In verse 6, he says, I have a hope that came from my ancestors. A promise given to the 12 tribes as they serve God night and day. And then he says, that hope, that's why I'm in prison. But what is this hope? The resurrection of Jesus, the Jewish Messiah. You see, Paul's belief, what he's saying is, it's not something new. I didn't wake up one day and come up with this whole new set of beliefs. This is a really old belief. It's just been fully realized in the person and work of Jesus. He's showing Agrippa he's on trial because he believes the hope of the Jewish nation. Which is why in verse 8 he asked this wonderful question. Why is it incredible that God raises the dead? If God's the author of life and creation, surely he can raise the dead, can't he? Surely it's not that hard for that sort of God to raise someone from the dead. It logically makes sense, doesn't it, Agrippa? Now he says that because he's aware the claim of the resurrection is absolutely bonkers to them. And when connected with the Jewish faith and Jesus, it sounds blasphemous, so much so that you probably should persecute the Christians if they say that which is actually what Paul did. In verse 9 to 18, Paul knows the difference a resurrection makes. That's his point. I know the difference a resurrection makes to me. Sometimes you may uh, live as if you try to make your past not happen. Um, kids do this all the time. They make a mistake. They hide the evidence. Um, it's, they don't hide it very well. You can see they've made a mistake. Uh, and you find the mess a little bit later, still under the bed, whatever it is. But even if no one knows what you've done, that mess under the bed still shouts loudly to you, doesn't it? Even if no one else can see or hear, your past is very much right there. Now you can imagine if you have spent a number of years of your life actively killing and persecuting people, that past would be a pretty big weight on your shoulders. Now that would be Paul, except for God's grace to him. It's the third time in the book of Acts, by the way, that we've heard of Paul's conversion. And every time Paul says, here's how I got, here's how I knew Jesus and got saved from that life. And every time he emphasizes a different part of his story to be as helpful as those listening. Which is good for us to think about too. How do you 
contextualize God's activity in your life depending on who's listening. The first thing that Paul says about his past is that he's honest about it. He's honest about his, the things he's done. He spent many years of his life with permission and on mission, capturing and agreeing to kill Christians. Why? Verse 11, they claim to be that Jesus was the Messiah. But then, from Jerusalem going up to Damascus, something happened. Just as Moses saw a bright flame, Paul sees this bright light. Just as God says Moses' name twice in the book of Exodus, so Paul, he says Paul's name twice, Saul, Saul. Just as God self-reveals as I am in Exodus chapter 3, Jesus self-reveals as I am. This incomprehensible God who self-exists, who doesn't need anyone or anything, is actually Jesus and is actually talking to Paul on his way to persecute or kick against the goats, he says, followers of this God. Goads is an odd phrase. You probably never used it. It's just the pointy stick you used to hit things with. And Jesus is saying that Paul has been resisting God's will by persecuting his people, but not anymore. Secondly, Paul's story is not a change of heart. It's a renewed life. See, what Paul deserves for his actions isn't overlooked by God. God doesn't just say, I'll forget it, don't worry about it. But the justice Paul deserved was already merited out at the cross of Jesus on his behalf. God simply gives grace to live on the other side of that. Which means Paul's goals, his ambitions, his view of people, it's all shaped by the resurrection of Jesus and the mercy that God has shown him. Notice how verse 17 to 18 is worded so quickly after Paul sees Jesus. I am sending you, God says, Paul's personal mission is now entirely dependent upon the prior mission of God. Do you get that? Not the permission of the Jerusalem leaders anymore. His mission, in verse 18, is salvation. Turning eyes from dark to light, from Satan to God, forgiveness of sins, a place among all of God's people by faith in Jesus. Paul's mission is about making God known. Because that's God's own mission. God has been doing this, revealing himself to people and nations ever since Genesis chapter when people were made. He's been showing himself off and doing that over and over again. This is a mission to the nations, a light to Jew and Gentile alike. And light, by the way, in this sense, isn't any sort of inner light that you have. As if you can find God by looking deep in your heart for your own goodness. Paul's story is that he didn't have that light, he needed it to be shone into him. It's turning to Jesus, who is the light of revelation for all people. This light had shone deep into his heart and mind, giving him what? The knowledge of God. Paul saw the resurrected Jesus, and now he's telling others about the resurrected Jesus. So they too can have the light of God's salvation, right? His point here is that I'm not choosing to have a mission to Jew and Gentiles on behalf of God. Paul has chosen for this mission as a servant of the already missional God. God's already making himself known and Paul just slots in with what God's doing. Which means in 19, verse 19 to 23, Paul is actually being obedient to God. What does that look like? Preaching to Jew and Gentiles. What does he preach? Turn to God. Do good works worthy of repentance. Worthy means appropriate. 
as in it's fitting. Do something that's fitting to be repentant. That's the way a Christian lives. And then, again, he brings it back to the resurrection in verse 23. He brings it back to the resurrection because two things happen when you believe Jesus as the risen Savior. Firstly, the resurrection convinces you Jesus is the Son of God. That gives approval. The resurrection gives approval to Jesus' victory over Satan's sin and death on the cross. And he preaches the resurrection because the resurrection presupposes a cross and a death, but the cross only makes sense because of the resurrection. Which means you only begin to understand all Jesus said and did because he rose from the dead. Secondly, belief in the resurrection motivates how you live. Not for acceptance, but from giving a new, being given a new life. You see, once we turn to God, it comes with this new set of behaviours to demonstrate we're living in the light of God, as Paul says. You see, when you are forgiven, when you know you're forgiven, you have a resurrected life with Jesus, the great Christian hope for the future is that. But it affects here and now. It's an encouragement not to sin more, but to demonstrate in your body the love and grace you have received. The fact is, because of the resurrection, your body that you have now, with all the good bits, all the tricky, challenging bits that you face with it, it is not the only bodily experience that you will ever have. You will have a resurrected body. The hope of this resurrected body is not 2023 Western culture, flat stomach, nice running legs type of body with lots of hair. Pick your perfect body, you know. You don't get to heaven and then there's a computer screen and God says, you decide how your resurrected body will look like and you can make it look whatever you want. And You know, it's... The hope of your resurrected body is that you'll be able to glorify and serve Jesus perfectly with no obstacles in a world that has no obstacles to that purpose, you see. That's the hope, and that's the future, but we live in light of it. Therefore, we serve our God now in light of what's to come, and your body will break down and fail you, and it will be a terrible mess right now. And you feel that. I'm sure most of you do. But if your hope, if the great Australian dream is the best body now, I'm sorry, but it's not going to be a very good dream. I, I speak to a number of you that are getting older, and you can almost hear some of the creaks and groans as you walk into... Like, you feel this, don't you? And you feel it on a much more profound level in other ways too. We know the best body life is yet to come. Therefore now we, we serve our God with his help along the way so that we can stand and testify with our life the truth of the great Christian hope, the resurrection of Jesus. With our past as a trophy of God's grace to the resurrection hope we have. Paul's obedient to that. And finally, Paul pivots. Giving this great speech, things are going so well, and then Festus pipes up and says, you're nuts. Your learning has lifted you out of the real world. That's what he means. Which is what most people think when you talk about the resurrection. A fanciful, made-up fairy tale at best. The trouble is, nothing with Paul's speech or his actions, how he's lived, Make it feel like Jesus has risen in Paul's heart and that he's desperately sad that Jesus died and he's just really lonely. So he wants Jesus to be alive in his heart. Uh, 
what Paul is on about, as he says in verse 25 and 6, is this is true and reasonable. He even says, God is not hiding in a corner. And then he turns to Agrippa. And Amanda set the stage it really well. You're chatting to Peter Malinowskis, and then you turn to Anthony Albanese and say, you know the prophets, right? Convince Festus on this. That's the setting. See, Agrippa knows what the Christians believe. He's had a lot to do with, with Jews. But he's not a believer. Can you persuade me, he says to Paul. And then Paul knows where success lies because he says this wonderful phrase, I pray to God that not only you but everyone else listening would be just like me except without the chains. You see, Paul has reasonably and rationally and respectfully talked about his belief. He knows at that point only by God's grace. That's why he says, I pray that you would. I pray you'd believe. True and reasonable the Christian faith is, but as Paul said, it takes the light of revelation to make known to us that personally. You may know exactly what Christians believe better than what most people here do, but the question isn't, do you know what a Christian believes? Is Jesus your risen Lord? Is he the one you're going to stake your life on now and for eternity? Paul testified in Acts 26 to the great Christian hope of the resurrection. And I pray you would have that hope too. Therefore, let me end with two considerations. Firstly, be clear on what matters. Be clear on what matters. Paul is an example of being kind, of being clear and respectful. He's not being clever. He knows the audience. He could connect Jesus to their life because he listened and understood something about them. But he also didn't shy away from his tricky past. Or the resurrection. Or how his hope comes from the Jewish scriptures. And it was fully realized in Jesus. You see, more interested than release, Paul wants them to believe. He's not giving facts for the sake of, but he wants them to see the reasonableness and the change that Christianity makes to a person so they would repent and believe too. Be clear on what matters. Secondly, don't forget a sense of triumph. Don't forget a sense of triumph in Jesus' resurrection. Paul's confidence comes from the resurrected Jesus, the great Christian hope. This is a joyful triumph, which is the best news for busy, burnt-out, disheartened Aussies. Our best life is the triumph of Jesus' resurrection, not living a few good years of the Aussie dream, and praise God if you can, but the triumph of Jesus' return and the hope of a bodily resurrection, that message, that hope that Christians have is infinitely greater and more wonderful for human history and society and your life. Don't forget that when you think about the resurrection. Don't forget that triumph, because at Jesus, you're looking over the victor of Satan, sin and death. That's the great Christian hope. And Jesus still does that today.